Welcome to Community Hope Podcast. We pray that the Word of Christ would dwell in you richly as you listen and that you would be encouraged in Christ. So good morning uh, to you. And uh, it's Palm Sunday. And I thought what we could do this morning as we go back into the Gospel of Luke, and we're going to go back a few chapters from where we've been because it is Palm Sunday. We're going to look at uh, Palm Sunday in, in terms of three kings, three kings. And the first one uh, wasn't even around anymore by the time that, uh, that Palm Sunday arrived. And uh, this is the, the king on, on a horse. Now, this takes place about uh, 80 years before Palm Sunday. And the guy I'm talking about here, the king I'm talking about here, is Julius Caesar. Uh, Caesar um, had just gotten done conquering uh, France and Germany. This is uh, actually the day I'm talking about is January 10th, 49 BC. Okay, so he's just got done with this conquering in the name of Rome, and then uh, what happens is he marches his troops right to the Rubicon River. The Rubicon River was the uh, the boundary line between Italy and the rest, and so now there's a law, and it's like a, a custom, and nobody's ever breached this before that you cannot bring your army into Italy. You know, you can understand that, right? You don't want, you know, military conquerors bringing their armies, like, into the capital. Caesar decides on this day he's going to do it anyway. He's on a white horse, and he takes his troops into the Rubicon River. And when he does this, he utters these words. He says, the die is cast. And then he sends a message to the Roman Senate, and the message is, I have crossed the Rubicon. That's a, a way of saying, like, okay, I'm bringing my armies down. What are you going to do about it? And this, what the Senate does is they flee for their lives because they know this guy is a conqueror here. And the fact that uh, Caesar's riding in like this, and eventually, by the way, he does succeed after some civil war, becomes dictator for life. But he's basically bringing this message, I have come as your conqueror. Now, you can see in this picture right here that, uh, you know, subsequent guys would come in and they'd paint their faces red. Um, and the reason they would do this is because red was the color of the god of war. And uh, it was also the color of Jupiter, who was the highest Roman god, right? So uh, he's, these conquerors are identifying as, like, gods, going, like, we're not only conquerors, we're pretty important, like, deities, right? We're associated with the deities. And then what they would do is they would eventually, with their troops and their prisoners of war and their loot, they would uh, march all the way to the temple of whatever god was in that city, and they would offer sacrifices to once again associate themselves with the god. Okay, so this was something that people of Jesus' day, they had a sense of what it meant when somebody would ride in here on a white horse. So now let's talk about a second king. This is a king on a donkey, and this is from Luke chapter 19. So it says in verse 28, Jesus went on toward Jerusalem, walking ahead of his disciples. This is about 80 years after Caesar's march into Rome. As he came to the towns of Bethpage and Bethany on the Mount of Olives, he sent two disciples ahead. Go into the village over there, he told them. As you enter it, you'll see a young donkey tied there that no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks, why are you untying that colt? Just say, the Lord needs it. Now, one of the things that I discovered this time as I was just reading some stuff 
is that they actually had places where you could rent donkeys, you know, kind of rent a donkey places uh, if you needed a ride. And uh, so what Jesus is doing right here is he's getting one of these donkeys. I don't know if he had, like, reserved it ahead of time or something like that. But you notice that he got, like, the economy model, right? It was like a colt. So we got a little compact donkey here, and it says in um, verse 32, so they went and found the colt, just as Jesus had said. And sure enough, as they were untying it, the owners asked them, why are you untying that colt? And the disciple simply replied, the Lord needs it. Now, had he reserved it, or maybe, you know, this is Bethany, he's got pals here, he raised Lazarus from the dead, so they know him and they like him. Uh, So they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their garments over it for him to ride on. Uh, the people, I think, understood the symbolism here because in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, it, it talks about this and it says, Rejoice, O people of Zion. That's the mountain that Jerusalem's built on. Shout in triumph, O people of Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, yet he is humble, riding on a donkey, riding on a donkey's colt. And so the guy who comes in riding on the donkey He's sending a message, but his message isn't, I'm coming as your conqueror. His message is, I've come to bring peace. Now, when we hear that, and we're going like, okay, Jesus is coming in here to bring peace. We go like, okay, what, what are we talking about? Are we talking about a guy who's like, okay, what I'm going to do is uh, be nice to you, or I'm not going to create trouble for you, or um, I'm going to like pass some kind of uh, sword control law or something like that to try to you know, affect a little more peace in it. And no, we're not really talking about it. We're talking about a much bigger concept. This is not like a horizontal kind of peace where we're trying to talk about peace between people, although that's going to come as a byproduct. But it's basically a, a vertical one where he's talking about bringing peace with God, which is a much bigger issue if you think about it. He's sending a sign that he's bringing this peace, but it's a costly peace. This is, this is going to cost big time to do this. It says uh, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 19, this is a good way to describe it. For God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against them. And he gave us this wonderful message of reconciliation. For God made Christ, who never sinned, to be the offering for our sin so that we could be made right with God through Christ. So he's bringing this peace. And you know what? I think this is something that each and each one of us in our souls, we're longing for because we all kind of feel uneasy, you know, like uh, when we start thinking about God, like, man, we know that we've offended him in so many ways and we're going like, man, if I don't have this peace, I'm in major trouble. I think this is why this whole COVID thing was such a big deal this last year is because people are going, this could be potentially fatal. There have been cases like that, they think, and they go like, am I ready to meet God? And I think the fact that people are still scared is just like a sign that they haven't settled that question. This is a, a big thought of Rachel, my youngest. Franciscan University of Steubenville, I don't know if any of you have heard of it, when my uh, daughter Rachel, my youngest, was a senior in high school, um, <clears throat> she got interested in this college. It's a Catholic college uh, in Steubenville. They actually, the people who go there call it Steubyu. And we went to visit it. And it was kind of an interesting visit because there were some uh, like professors there that were wearing like, you know, like long robes and they had sandals, you know, like monks. 
and everything. Most of the people were dressed like you and me, but it's a, a very, you know, it's a Christian college there. And uh, Franciscan University of Steubenville this spring, uh, they decided they were going to teach some courses to uh, people with distance learning, you know, like uh, adults who had graduated and they wanted to take maybe a theology course. So they attempted to put an ad in Facebook. Uh, it's this ad right here, and this got canned by Facebook. Uh, and take a look at it, okay? So it's a picture of Jesus on a cross, kind of an artistic version. And it says, we teach those who teach the faith. Facebook turned this one down, and you can see their message on the right-hand side of the screen. Your image, video thumbnail or video, can't contain shocking, sensational, or excessively violent content. Right Now, it's interesting. How did Franciscan University respond to this. Well, here's what they said. They agreed. They said, indeed, the crucifixion of Christ was all those things. It was the most sensational action in history. Man executed his God. It was shocking, yes. God deigned to take on flesh and was obedient to death, even death on a cross, Philippians 2.8. And it certainly was excessively violent, a man scourged to within an inch of his life, nailed naked to a cross and left to die, all the hate of all the sin in the world poured out its wrath on humanity. And they continued, he was God and he could have descended from the cross at any moment. No, it was love that kept him there. Love for you and me that we might not be eternally condemned for our sins, but might have life eternal with him and his father in heaven. Isn't that cool what they put down there? They basically said, hey, you're looking at a picture of the gospel right here. Um, you know, what Jesus did in this action was he accepted justice to achieve peace with God. Maybe you've heard the cliche, no justice, no peace. And typically when people say that, they're saying, look, you know, if you don't treat me the way I want to be treated, there's going to be like real trouble right here, right? But what happened here is like, that no justice, no peace. He's going, in order for me to make, bring about this peace between God and human beings, I have got to accept justice. I have got to pay for all the wrongs that have been done because there's a lot of offense out there toward God, and I've got to take the punishment myself. And as he received that justice for all the sins that you and I have committed, all that rebellion and all that hatred and violence and all that terrible stuff that's going on and has gone on in the world, he brought peace with God. What an amazing thing. You know, here's a picture of it in action. So I heard this guy's testimony a week or two ago, David Nasser. Uh, he's a guy who works at Liberty University right now. But he came from Iran and uh, he and his family fled Iran in about 1979 or so because the Ayatollah had overthrown the Shah, okay? So they ran for their lives because his father was uh, an official in the Shah's government and he was, there was a death warrant on him. They managed to escape by the skin of their teeth from uh, Tehran's airport. And they made it to Switzerland. And now they're going like, look, we have a limited amount of time to get asylum in some country. Otherwise, they're going to send us back. And so they kept applying, and they kept applying. 
Now, the U.S. is where they really needed to go, but the U.S. wasn't taking any asylum seekers from Iran because this was the time during the hostage crisis, if, if some of you remember that. And so they're really desperate. The days are running out. He's got, you know, the, the family has a day or two to go, and uh, it's, they're right at the end. And the mom comes home, and she's got a picture. You know, it's a full-size picture. And, it's, and Nasser said, it looked like a white guy with long hair. And they're going like, who's this, you know? She said, this guy's name, I guess, is Jesus, and he is an important God in America. And we're Muslims, but why don't we pray to this American God, and let's see if anything, we got nothing to lose. So they pray this prayer to this American God, as they thought of him. And the next day, they got their papers, and they were granted asylum. They came to America, and it was about 10 or 15 years later that David Nasser, when he was going to college, that he ran into some Christian people. He was attracted by their attitude and their, their joy and things like that. He explored it, became a follower of Jesus himself. He was disowned by his family, but within the next five years, he led them all to, to know Jesus Christ and that whole family that you can see in that inset picture on the left-hand side are followers of Jesus now. And I bring that story up to you because it just points out to me that when peace with God has been achieved, here are these people who are like, you know, it's like their theology is crazy. They don't know who they're even talking to. They're just trying to get out of a jam. But it's like God's going like, oh, these people are seeking me, and I, I'm going to pursue them now. The door is open, and this is the way it is now. Because, the, because of the peace that Jesus has achieved, you know, if you just, the slightest interest, he's going to pursue you and, and try to win your heart. He's, his heart is open here. We got a God who loves us and is at peace with us. Okay, now there were two reactions to the king on a donkey. And the first one is Jesus' followers. Verse 36, as he rode along, the crowd spread out their garments on the road ahead of him. When he reached the place where the road started down the Mount of Olives, all his followers began to shout and sing as they walked along, praising God for all the wonderful miracles they'd seen. Blessings on the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. Now, these people, you've got to understand who they are. These are not the people who are living in Jerusalem who later on, you know, uh, were part of the whole mob scene against Jesus. These are followers of Jesus, and the vast majority of Jesus' followers are from Galilee. They're from a northern province, and they're considered by the people of Jerusalem to be like country bumpkins. You know, these are the people who live in the sticks, and who are they? And they're pretty, pretty ignorant. Um, I hate to admit this, uh, the story that I'm going to tell you here, but just a, a, an analogy right here. When I was in college, I met my wife, right, Nancy, and uh, we're going together, and I find out that she's from Indiana. Uh, she's a and I'm going like, and she lives on a farm. And I'm a city boy from Milwaukee, Wisconsin, right? And I'm kind of like, whoa, one of those kind, huh? One of these hayseeds. And I'm going like, you know, they, okay, so she's from Indiana, a Hoosier. And they wear bib overalls there everywhere they go. And they say that their tractor is my tractor and talk like that. And they square dance at weddings. And I'm kind of like, oh, yeah, they're not cool like me. Now, my wife which is interesting, you know, who was my girlfriend at the time. She found out I was from Wisconsin, 
And she goes like, oh, one of those guys, they have cow manure on their front lawns because they're all dairy farmers there. So we're each kind of looking down at each other's origin. I was so stupid. I'll tell you, in those days, I so overrated myself and so underrated the, the, the people of Indiana, you know? It was just like crazy. But that's the way it was with, these, with the people of Jerusalem and these people here. And there were, most of them were from Galilee. And then there was probably some people from Bethany because they'd seen the miracles Jesus did for Lazarus. But Bethany was still out, you know, comparatively in the sticks. So they're like, but these people are like, yeah, Jesus, we're for him, okay? Now, on the other side, we got Jerusalem's leaders. And these guys are like the religious leaders. They're the intelligentsia, the elites of the time, Right? And it says, some of the Pharisees among the crowd said, teacher, rebuke your followers for saying things like that. They're going, this is so inappropriate. He replied, if they kept quiet, the stones along the road would burst into cheers. Now, we have no frame of reference in our culture for religious leaders, right? Because we don't have any. I mean, we got people who are in religion and, and they're heads of churches and things like that. But they don't have the cultural influence. You know what I'm saying? Like the people back in Jesus' day. These were the guys who like, were the opinion makers. They're going like, this opinion's right, this opinion's wrong. And I think the closest thing we have to this today are the people that we call the experts. Haven't you heard that word a lot? The experts say. Like I get this Illyria Chronicle newspaper. It's really kind of a rag. But like they always have these headlines for whatever is on their editorial page. They have experts that they cite who back it up, right? So health order limits worry experts. So I read this article. Turns out it's a medical guy who works for the city of Lorraine. Expert, right? We cannot make it without science. Greta Thunberg says climate experts are being ignored. We got experts for everything. We got foundation crack experts. We got tree experts. We got car experts. We got parenting experts. We got colleges full of experts on all subjects right here. And I'm not dogging uh, college faculties and stuff. You know, if you think about it, so many of these colleges this year, they go like, okay, we're going to bring your student into the school and we're going to lock him in a dorm and he's going to watch all the classes uh, virtually and we're going to charge you 55000 and the people pay it. I'm going, if you're that smart to pull off a scam like that, you are an expert. You know, you're a smart person. Um, I think the biggest experts in our culture right now are medical people. Right? I mean, that's the way it's kind of has gone. I got this neighbor that I was talking to a week ago, and uh, she says, she's, this is a direct quote from her, I believe in science. I do whatever they say. And so, like, I remember, like, back one year ago in March, she was washing all her groceries and the newspaper that came to the door, because science said that, right? But she didn't wear a mask because scientists said, no, masks don't help. And then we got to about April and May, then they said, wear a mask, so she wore a mask. And then in November, they said, wear two masks, so she wore two masks. You know, and so these are the experts. These are kind of like the Pharisees were in that day. They, you know, when they want to make us feel comfortable, they go, well, science says this. Back in the day of Jesus, they go, the law says this. The traditions of the elders say this. Okay, now, Jesus' followers are not intimidated by these guys, but they're just still like praising the Lord. They're shouting. They're singing as they walked along. And they're just going, like, we don't care. You know, we don't care if, if these people are looking down on us. You know, they're praising God like this. It's really great. 
And I think this is telling us something. It's saying that followers of Jesus, we're called to boldly worship him. We don't, we, we need, we, we, we better not back down, even in the face of hostility or being held in contempt. You know our culture is becoming more and more kind of like contemptuous of Christianity. You're going, eh, it's a superstition. You guys are behind the times. How can you believe that kind of stuff? But we, we don't let down, do we? we? We continue to praise the Lord. We continue to walk with him and, and share the, the truths that he's showing us. Now look at this, verse 41. But as he came closer to Jerusalem and saw the city ahead, he began to weep. How I wish today that you of all people would understand the way to peace. But now it's too late and peace is hidden from your eyes. He's anticipating the hostility, right? Before long, your enemies will build ramparts against your walls and encircle you and close in on you from every side. They will crush you into the ground and your children with you. Your enemies will not leave a single stone in place because you did not recognize it when God visited you. And so he makes this startling prediction. He goes, this city is going to be like demolished. It's going to be torn down. It's going to be wrecked. Do you know that this took place, this literally took place just exactly as Jesus said about 37 years later when General Titus of the Romans came in leveled the place, destroyed the beautiful temple, burned the place to the ground, and, and shipped the Jews away. It was just a horrific event. And Jesus is going, you know, there's judgment coming. There's judgment coming. This is something we also don't have any frame of reference for. Um, this is a picture here of Don Lemon, and he's a newsreader on, on CNN. And a couple of weeks ago, the Pope announced that he said we, the church cannot bless same-sex unions. You know, we can't bless sin. And Don Lemon was blasting him, uh, the Pope, and then he said this, God is not about hindering or even judging people. Now, I think he speaks for the majority of Americans because I think the majority of Americans believe that God would never hinder our happiness. He wants us to be happy. That's what our, what our thinking is. Nor would God ever judge us for doing the things that we, that we want to do. You know, and this is something that Jesus is going, you know what, I hate to tell you this, but there's judgment. There's judgment. It's a serious business. There are consequences for ignoring what Jesus is saying. Jesus' offer of peace has an expiration date. In this case, it was 37 years but it has an expiration date. This is, this is a very serious thing. That picture right there is actually a photograph of Hiroshima after it was bombed. But I think that's about the way it looked in Jerusalem after General Titus got through with it. Um, you know what's interesting is the reason that judgment came is in the last two lines. Your enemies will not leave a single stone in place because you did not recognize it when God visited you. You know, the problem wasn't with their expertise. The law is a good thing. The traditions, there's lots of good traditions. Science has got a lot to tell us. But the problem here was that they didn't recognize the Lord. This was the God of creation coming into their midst, offering this peace, and they blew it off. They blew it off. It just reminded me of a true story that I heard uh, recently where there was this woman... She's working at this company. She's in kind of a management position. And um, 
they had, to, they had a, a meeting. It was the first meeting that she had gone to. So she goes into this meeting. She knew one other person pretty well at the company, so she was saving a seat for her. And this guy walks into the meeting, and he goes, can I uh, have this seat right here? And she goes, no, I'm saving this for, for my friend. Oh, okay, the guy says, and he moves on. And then this other guy comes over, and he goes, do you know who you just told not to take a seat? She goes, no, I, I don't know the guy. She, uh, the guy says, that was the CEO of the company. You know, and that's exactly what happened in Jerusalem. The CEO walked in, and they go, we don't have room for you. We're sorry. We got our own thing. We got our own traditions. We got our own beliefs. And so, no, thank you. And they, were, and they eventually even uh, crucified him. You know, um, and then it says, Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out the people selling animals for sacrifices. He said to them, the scriptures declare, my temple will be a house of prayer, but you have turned it into a den of thieves. So what's he talking about here? The den of thieves. What does that mean? Actually, uh, he's talking about something that was said in the Old Testament in the book of Jeremiah, where it talked about the temple as a den of thieves. But let me show it to you visually here first. Um, this is a photograph of Den of Robbers State Park in Oklahoma. This is an historical site, and it's up in the hills, and um, it's a place where in the early part of the 20th century, criminals in America would hide out. And the reason this is such a great place uh, to be a den of robbers, den of thieves, was that it was high up in the hills and they could see every way that law enforcement would be coming to get them. So they had all this advance notice. And then it had an added advantage of the fact that they were all, it was honeycombed with caves. And they had like very small, hard to see entrances where these guys could go and hide. And there were a number of notorious American criminals who hid out there and used it as a successful way to hide. Now, Jesus is using that very same reference right here, and it goes back to the book of Jeremiah. So this is about 650 years or so before, um, or maybe 600 years before Jesus comes on the scene. And God is talking here to the people back then who had this very beautiful Solomon's temple. And he's, God says this, don't be fooled into thinking you'll f never suffer because the temple is here. It's a lie. Do you really think you can steal, murder, commit adultery, lie, and burn incense to Baal and all those other new gods of yours, and then come here and stand before me in my temple and chant, we are safe, only to go right back to all those evils again? Do you yourselves admit that this temple which bears my name has become a den of thieves? Surely I see all the evil going on there. I, the Lord, have spoken. He's going, you can't hide there. Now go now to the place at Shiloh where I once put the tabernacle that bore my name. That was the temple, um, you know, one that came before the temple, the temporary structure. See what I did there because of all the wickedness of my people, the Israelites. While you were doing these wicked things, says the Lord, I spoke to you about it repeatedly, but you wouldn't listen. I called out to you, but you refused to answer. So just as I destroyed Shiloh, I will now destroy this temple that bears my name, this temple that you trust in for help, this place that I gave to you and your ancestors, and I will send you out of my sight into exile, just as I did your relatives, the people of Israel. You know, it was just a matter of a few years later, and God did exactly that. The Babylonians this time came in. They leveled 
the place. They burn the temple down. They haul the Israelites off into captivity. And that very same thing was going to be repeated about 37 years later after Palm Sunday. And Jesus is sending out that same warning right here. And the warning is basically this. There's no hiding behind religion. You know, that offer of peace that, that comes, our tendency so many times is, you know, I really don't want to deal with God. That would take too much away from me. That would scare me. And so I'm going to do a little religious stuff. You know, I'll come to church. I'll, I'll you know, I'll listen to sermons. You know, I'll pray some prayers when I'm in a jam. You know, I'll, I'll get a religious vocation. I'll preach a sermon, you know, and I'll do my religious, check off a few boxes, and then I don't have to deal with the fact that God wants my life. He wants my life, and he's calling me to a wholehearted repentance uh, with him, and he's, doing, he's saying this, look it, keep it, keep on going with it. Make it a lifestyle for you. David Brickner's from uh, Jews for Jesus, Messianic uh, group, and he's had people ask him, he goes, do you think this COVID thing is something that, that God has sent? And he goes, you know what? I think, you know, plagues and sicknesses, those are just, um, you know, we were living in a broken world and those things are, are going to happen. But he says there are places in the Bible where God uses these things as a warning, like he did to King Abimelech back in Genesis. And there are times when he uses it to give us instruction, like he did to the children of Israel where he do, look, look at the plague I'm sending in Egypt. This is going to show you my power and what I can do and you can remember this. And then people go like, yeah, but do you think it's a judgment? And he said, the only way I can answer that question is, can you think of a reason why God wouldn't choose to judge the earth right now? I mean, if you think of all the violence and the hate and the depravity and just the waywardness and the rebellion against God and the fists that are shaking in his face every day and people just blatantly ignoring him, God has been merciful. You know, why wouldn't he judge? And we're just so grateful that he has still being patient with us. You know, there's a third king. I mentioned there was a conqueror coming in there and going, I'm laying down the law. And then there was, uh, then there's the king coming in peace. But the king on a donkey who came in peace is also going to return on a horse. And I wanted you to just see where this is talked about in the book of Revelation. It's Revelation 19. And it's like the Lord has... Jesus has raised his people to be with him, and then the judgment comes down. And it says in verse 11 of Revelation 19, Then I saw heaven open, and on his head just fairly, and wages a righteous war. His eyes were like flames of fire, and on his head were many crowns. A name was written on him that no one understood except himself. He wore a robe dipped in blood, and his title was the Word of God. The armies of heaven dressed in the finest of pure white linen followed him on white horses. From his mouth came a sharp sword to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron rod. He will release the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty, like juice flowing from a wine press. And on his robe and at his thigh was written this title, King of Kings and Lord of all Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun shouting to the vultures flying high in the sky, come, gather together for the great banquet God has prepared. Come and eat the flesh of kings, generals, and strong warriors, of horses and their riders, and of all humanity, both free and slave, small and great. 
And so that king that rode in in humility is going to come back and he's coming in glory and he's coming in power. You know, and he means business. Now you and I, we live at a time after he rode into Jerusalem in peace. And we live before the time when he's coming on the horse. And that's a word for us to not delay in really taking this seriously. And I think of this story of Robert Lowell, poet laureate of America for many years, greatest poet in America, that's him on the left. And the woman on his right was Elizabeth Hardwick, a great writer, a prose writer. And they were married for 20 years. And then he ran off. He said, there's another woman that I'm more interested in. And so he abandoned the marriage and went to live with this other woman. Elizabeth Hardwick did not give up. She continued to write him letters for seven years saying, look, come back, we had a great thing. You know, don't, don't, don't make this mistake. And finally, after seven years, he said, you know, maybe I'll give that a try. And so he said, I'm, I'm booking a plane to New York, and he flew into LaGuardia, and he grabbed a taxi. And the taxi arrived at her apartment in New York City. The doorman at that apartment called up to Elizabeth and said, uh, that cab you've been waiting for is here. She came down. She opened the door. But Robert Lowell had died of a heart attack, and he was sitting dead in the back seat. It was too late. It was too late. And may that not happen to us. And that's why I think the message of Palm Sunday is from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20. And this is a word that he gave to the people in Corinth that Paul did, God speaking through him. And it's a word for you and me on this Palm Sunday. And it says this, We were sent to speak for Christ, and God is begging you to listen to our message. We speak for Christ and sincerely ask you to make peace with God. Let's pray. Father, as we uh, come to you this morning, the only thing we can say to you is uh, we are so grateful. We are so grateful for your plan of peace that you arranged. We didn't deserve it. We couldn't earn it. We couldn't make it happen. But you enabled it to happen, and you paid the price, Lord Jesus, with your own blood, taking that, that for us. And Lord, we, we just thank you that you are the Prince of Peace, and you have come into our lives, and you've shared this message with each one of us here. And Father, I pray from the depths of my heart that not a single person who's hearing this message would turn away from it, that none of us would take it for granted, that we would we'd realize what a great gift we've been given and we would freely receive that and just by your power walk that out every day so that we could be numbered among that crowd that just sings your praises and shouts how great you are no matter what the opposition that comes. And Lord, again, we thank you and we pray for your, we thank you for your mercy and we just pray for your help. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about Community of Hope, go to www.cohchurch.com. God bless you today.